you having me. Thank you. Thank you. So let me start with the question I ask almost all my guests uh, in discussing this era. Let us imagine um, a literary critic or a major poet uh, from Britain or from Europe comes to tour the United States to, uh, to learn of its uh, poetic trends and tendencies and, and uh, great poets around the end of the Civil War, say 1860, uh, the, the late 1860s, the middle of the period, say the 1890s, and by the end of the period, around and after World War I. What would they find? What would have changed? What would have stayed the same? Well, I think um, it's hard to separate America from, uh, from England at the time. Um, in America you're going to see a huge influence of Walt Whitman. Uh, Leaves of Grass came out in 1855, and that changed a way a lot of, uh, a lot of people looked at poetry. Um, at the same time, you've got a bunch of, uh, a bunch of the English, you can kind of outrage that Whitman showed up on the wrong shore. They were claiming him as, uh, as English rather than as, um, than as American. He said he was too good for the Americans. Uh, which is kind of funny, um, especially considering that his whole intent was to do something distinctly American. Um, if you give me a second, I've got uh, just a little uh, a little clip here from that clip, a little uh, section here from the intro to Leaves of Grass, where he tries to describe what he intends to do. He says, America does not repel the past or what it has produced under its form or amid other politics or the idea of caste or old religion. It accepts the lessons with calmness. It's not so... Uh, impatient, as has been supposed, that the slow still sticks to opinion in matters and literature, while the life which served its requirements has passed into the new life and new forms. 
perceives that the course is slowly born from the eating and sleeping rooms of the house, perceives that it waits a little while in the door, that it was fittest for his days, that its action is descended to the stalwart and well-shaped heir who approaches. He very much wanted to build on what had already existed, but do something completely different. And um, you get that change, and you see it in poets, uh, which is an odd thing to say. You don't see it immediately. The immediate thing that most people are going to be reading is things like Longfellow. Um, you know, and Longfellow, um, he was a superstar. Uh, he made more money possibly than any poet, you know, just for inflation or whatnot, but than any poet ever did in their lifetime. And at one point, uh, the New Yorker paid him $3,000 uh, $3, for a single 200-line poem. And if you adjust that, it comes to about 80000 just under $80,000. So it was a very poetry-hungry country. Uh, they, they very much enjoyed it. But there were huge changes that were happening kind of bubbling under. I don't know if that makes sense. <laughs> well, makes sense. So what, what sort of changes do you, uh, are you talking about? So you've got the, uh, it, while the influence of Whitman is happening, you have Emily Dickinson writing. He's doing something completely different than, um, than what is acceptable, what's being printed. And then you've got Gerard Manley Hopkins taking his influence from Whitman. And he's doing that in England. But both of them are completely unknown. So what you have happening at this time is one of the biggest changes that I've seen in English language poetry, uh, kind of being born. So in Emily Dickinson, I mean, you know, she was, she published 10 poems, I think, in her lifetime of the 1800 that she wrote. Uh, the rest of them were, were all put out in, I think, 1890 by her sister. She found a big box under the bed, essentially. Um, and it's, it's listed at 1,800 poems, but a lot of them were revisions. So some people say it's about 1,700. But uh, and she was very much a recluse. She wrote to see if she, uh, if she could be published. She wrote to a man named uh, Thomas Higgins, who was a publisher with The Atlantic. And he sent her, uh, he sent her four original poems. And he loved them, but he didn't know what to do with them. Um, from her complete poems, the uh, editor, guy named Thomas Johnson, wrote that Higgins just didn't know what to do him because he, he had an inability to classify. Uh, Higgins uh, himself wrote, The impression of a wholly new and organic poetic genius was distinct on my mind at the first reading of these poems, as it is now 30 years or of further knowledge, and with the came of never yet solved and what place ought to be assigned. Nobody really knew what to do with her, so she kind of kept quiet. Um, so you had her, and then you had Hopkins across the sea taking the influence of Whitman. Hopkins was a, a priest, a Catholic priest, uh, spent most of his life more or less cloistered, and he didn't release his poems. His poems weren't released until 1918. But uh, he, from Whitman, <laughs> he put it a certain wicked, wickedness. He said that he saw in Whitman, in Whitman something very similar to his own mind, which terrified him because he, he thought that was, that was not a, something he would, he would uh, openly confess because he saw, you know, as I said, a wickedness there. But Hopkins was playing around with, um, with Anglo-Saxon rhythms and rhymes, uh, lots of alliteration, more playing with stress points than, uh, than as we do syllabic meter. So you got almost kind of a, a drum roll from him. He had lines like, uh, I caught this morning's morning minion Kingdom of Daylight's Dauphin, Dappled on Drawn Falcon, just lots of heavy beats. And all of that came together in uh, probably about 19, the early 1900s uh, with Americans, but Americans in England. Um, 
it's hard to, to overemphasize just how much Ezra Pound had to do with the poetry we read now, because he took all these ideas, all these ideas from, from, uh, from Whitman, from to a lesser sense of Dickinson, but also took them from the popular poets of the time. He despised Longfellow, and he, he said he despised Tennyson, which a lot of people would kind of consider the same, uh, kind of, kind of the, the Longfellow of England at the time. In other words, the hugely popular, but at the same time sort of nationalistic, almost jingoistic, jingoistic poets. But he drew from them, and he put together something that, that came out as a modern poetry as we know it. So... Um, let me see. Uh, but while all that's going, poetry it, it, during that period went on. It, it wasn't all on experimentation. You had geniuses like Christina Rossetti, uh, Thomas Hardy. Um, separate from all of them, you had Algernon Swinburne and uh, and Yeats. So it was it was a very interesting time. There's a lot going on. It definitely sounds that way. Um, you bring up an interest. Uh, I mean, there are many interesting points I could address, but I wanted to start with. You mentioned how Longfellow and uh, Tennyson were kind of jingoistic in this era, not just in poetry, but also uh, I've noticed in classical music and a lot of other ways. America, as it was growing and becoming more prosperous and more powerful uh, economically, demographically even uh, politically on the world stage, um, people were becoming more and more anxious dealing with kind of an inferiority complex vis-a-vis uh, Europe uh, and, as you mentioned, Britain. Um, but what exactly, to, to, what, to the extent we can know, what exactly was, it, who thought, you know what, poetry is universal and therefore as was commonly said, the people in the old world are the best and we just have to be their best mimickers. Uh, and who said we need a distinctly American voice, but what exactly would be that distinctly American voice? How would it express itself? Well, Whitman was the biggest front on the distinctly American voice. Uh, but it, I, it's hard to say, for me, it's hard to say that he was the distinctly American voice because he went out and proclaimed it. Um, it wasn't something that developed. It wasn't something that just happened. He came out and said, I am the American voice. At the same time, you've got somebody, and I make fun of Wadsworth, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow just because, you know, he's got these poems like, um, you know, The Arrow and the Song. This is, a, this is a wonderfully cute poem, but it's sort of saccharine. It's, I shot an arrow into the air. It fell to earth. I knew not where, for swiftly, for so swiftly it flew, the sight, could, <laughs> excuse me, the sight could not follow in its flight. Um, it's stuff like that, but, and I make fun of that, but this guy was a genius. Um, he was a linguist. He, he studied uh, all the old poets from all over the, um, the continent. He was fluent in, I think, about six or seven languages, but I've got a list of, at the very least, he was conversational in Latin, French, Italian, Spanish, Portuguese, and German, uh, could get along in Dutch, Danish, Swedish, Finnish, and Icelandic. And, um, you know, I've, I've never seen any mention of, of ancient Greek, but you just kind of have to assume. And he did some work on uh, on biblical studies, so I, I would assume he's got a bit of Aramaic in there too. This was a guy that didn't need to be told um, about great traditions. This was a guy that knew, but he wrote poems that he liked, and he wrote poems that people liked. And I just think that there was no stopping him. I don't think that it was. Um, I don't even know that he saw himself as adding to some great tradition. It's just sort of making people happy, making himself happy. Um, there was, you know, the 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 
big picture everybody gets of him, the big picture, the most common picture out there is him with this long flowing beard. And he, he grew that beard because um, he got scars on his face. His wife, um, his wife was, uh, she was ironing. Somehow she got what, whatever it was she was ironing caught on fire and then ended up catching her dress on fire. And he jumped up and he put her out. Uh, she died 24 hours later. And if you read his kind of elegy for her, even it is sort of this standoffish, this is what people will like. It's, it's a very bizarre thing to read. Um, so he reads, you know, let me see if I can find a quick line from that. Uh, these 18 years, though all the changes seen in seasons changeless since the day she died. Uh, that sun defying in its deep ravines display across the snow upon its side. It, it's all very distant. It's very kind of stand up and, and this is for the people. There's nothing in there that really seems to be an expression of him, this genius who spoke every language known to, to Europe and all that. An interesting point. So it, it sounds like he was very much in tune with the Victorian era when you, you weren't, you felt things, but you weren't like the modern sense. You were in tune with your feelings in the sense we would understand today. Um, well, I think just a, Yeah? Oh, I was going to say just as a, as a as kind of a, a, an illustration of just what you said there. You know, he had sort of this standoffish, lifeless... Uh, eulogy for his wife and you go across the sea and there's Tennyson wrote out not a wife but uh someone who I've read without knowing exactly who it is someone very important to him he wrote Clarabelle and um you know this is a this is a funeral poem but where Clarabelle low lieth the breezes pause and die letting the rose leaves fall that the solemn oak tree sigheth thick-leaved ambrosial with ancient melody of inward agony where Clarabelle low lieth everything's ascribed to something else uh the trees are sad. Um, later, thickets are sad. Moss is, is, is upset. There's nothing, there's nothing internal from it. There's nothing uh, from the person. And, you know, that, that explosion happened, again, I, I, I always go back to Pound. That's one of my faults, but I just see him as a nexus. That was something that, that was slowly building, and then Pound kind of collected these, these groups of people and, and got in touch with editors of publications, and that's, again kind of poetry as we know it, the, the reflective lyric uh, that has always been around, but it's almost exclusively what we read now. Okay. So before we get to Pound, uh, we are obviously going to have to discuss, uh, let me ask a very basic question. Okay. <laughs> let's say someone, let's say uh, an American man or woman, fairly literate, uh, and decides they want to become a, a published poet. Uh, how do they go? How do they even go about doing it? Who do they talk to? Where do they go to? Um, were there like literary agents in the sense we understand today, for instance? Uh, as far as I know, there were literary agents. But if you look at um, a lot of the publications at the time, would, would be holding contests. That's how Emily Dickinson got published uh, through the Atlantic. She read she read an article about how to become a published poet. And um, they were having a contest, and she sent in uh, against. So I mentioned this guy Higgins, and he said, "Fantastic! I don't know what to to do with it." Um, you know, a, a lot of the poets you read were professors. A lot of them were um, were people that had published otherwise. Um, there was coming up kind of a um, a crisis in uh, in 
publication, for so long there had been uh, patronage. And patronage was disappearing, and they, they, people really didn't know what to do. You really didn't, I mean, you didn't see a real solution until Joyce and T.S. Eliot. But uh, a lot of them would, would uh, publish in magazines, and then they would do a small printing, kind of an exclusive printing, sent out to, uh, to friends and family. And if that was popular, then they would attempt to sell. But, um, you know, it, it, it's kind of like now. If you're a musician right now, you know, you can get an agent. You can sign with a label. Uh, you know, you, you can, you can go huge, but most people are going to do something, kind of put it out themselves, sort of a YouTube or, um, or get yourself on Apple music, things like that. So we would always, I would say almost always start small. Okay. Um, and on the customer side, uh, of poetry, uh, to the extent we can know, A, what were the kind of people who read poetry? And perhaps most importantly, I remember someone pointing out that, like, for a long time, poetry was something very much to be sung or to be read aloud. Was poetry something like that uh, in American life, or did people read it silently to themselves? I think there was a lot of uh, a lot of both. You had a lot of um, of poems that were sort of uh, sort of alehouse type things. Um, so you, you get a strict meter, consistent refrain, um, you know, meant to be said but in front of people, um, and again sort of that Longfellow was, was pretty good at these things. These things that tell a story of the Hiawatha type thing. Um, you'd later see them, I think, sort of resolved into uh, to what's called 14ers. So um, diambic heptameter. So you have an I am unstressed, stressed uh, seven times in a line. And I'm trying to think of one that is contemporary with the Gilded Age, but uh, immediately what comes to, to mind are things like uh, Mighty Casey at bat. Um, these things meant to be said. Uh, strangely enough, the, the the most obvious when people ask, for example, I am a heptameter, I, I tell them the Gilligan's Island theme because you know you sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful ship. Um, so there was a lot of that. There was a lot of of turning inward, though. Things like Emily Dickinson, um, this idea that commercial was bad because you had for so long poetry was written privately among gentlemen and gentle ladies. Uh, then you had Byron turn the world upside down, become a superstar, and then you had people trying to be Byron. And so you had poets, and then you had artists, and then you had people that were in between. But the uh, the artists didn't like the idea of it going out and being, you know, this barroom type thing. Um, and that went in the direction with, I'd say, Hardy, probably Rossetti, um, and uh, you're going to hate me for repeating the name over and over again, then Pound came along. And he had spent some time studying in uh, in France and Italy, trying to bring back the troubadour idea. He called it the Provençal idea, but um, it also came along uh, Remini, where he eventually li- li- uh, lived. But these ideas of uh, of um, poems meant to be sung, refrains meant to be said by a crowd, and from that we get the ideas of like uh, the villanelle, which um, is a poetic form um, with three line stanzas. And the first stanza, the first line becomes a refrain, and the third line becomes a refrain in alternating stanzas of three lines either till it resolves in a, a four-line stanza. But um, for, for that, like the most famous one of those is probably uh, Do Not Go Gently Into This Good, That Good Night uh, by Dylan Thomas. Very interesting. So before I ask about Pound, and clearly I need to. Um, yeah, he's going to come up anyway, my fault. <laughs> yeah. Um, if I may ask, 
there, this was a time where there were a lot of pressing social questions, debates, politics. Uh, this was an era of, uh, when uh, voting rates were the highest they ever were, at least until recently. Um, people were debating about how much the state should be involved, about people's right to vote. How much did poets, American poets at the time, prominent ones, think it worthwhile to talk about what one might call fleeting or at least contemporary issues and how many of this had no point of the poem, poet is to be universal and to speak of timeless things. I think it's more that universal and timeless thing. Um, as you were saying that I was thinking of a few examples from England, but, um, but off the top of my head, um, there were, there were no great poetic movements and you know, political movements, uh, and I say that as a poetic fan, you know, I'm not an academic, but, but uh, I, I've read pretty widely and I'm, I'm just not thinking of anything that was at least sustained through, uh, through many poets. Okay. Good answer. Now that, now we come to Pound. Who was he? What was the revolution <laughs> he brought about and why on earth was he so gung-ho to do it? He was born in, uh, in Oregon. Strangely, in the same uh, county in remote rural Oregon that Hemingway would usually he would eventually choose to uh, to end his life. Um, but his his family uh, were uh, you know civic leaders. They worked um, you know they, they would go to new towns, be the postmaster, things like that. Eventually, though, his family ended up in in Philadelphia, and he for the rest of his life claimed to be a uh, an expatriate Philadelphian. Um, he went to the University of Pennsylvania with uh, William Carlos Williams. He got to know a woman named Hilda Doolittle, who eventually uh, became very famous as um, as HD. Just uh, that was her her pen name. And uh, when he moved to to England, he wasn't alone. There were a lot of American poets that thought London was where they'd make their fortune for whatever reason, um, and they didn't so much gather around him. He was just this person of incredible energy. Uh, his poetry is fantastic. He's not a major poet, though. I mean, his poetry is fantastic. But his ability to spot talent in other people is unsurpassed. Uh, he, you know, he, he brought H.D. along. He helped publicize William Carlos Williams. He recommended Robert Frost. This was after the time period you're talking about. But he recommended Robert Frost to a Poetry Magazine. He, um, he... Believe it or not, he did clothing drives. He kept James Joyce's family clothed when nobody knew he was because he spotted the talent and said, this guy is somebody we need to do. He, um, the eventual bomb that was dropped on poetry that was uh, Elliot's The Wasteland was considerably longer until Pound got a hold of him and said, you know, you need to cut about two-thirds of this, and he did. He was just one of these guys, and once he spotted a poet, he would say, you've got to publish this guy. He would you know, send letters to all these different, uh, different publications in both the U.S. And in, uh, and in Europe and sort of make their names. So American poetry, or American poetry that survived, um, in a lot of ways worked through him. So in a lot of ways, his likes and dislikes helped form that. So you get in the, uh, the early 1900s, he, he comes under the spell of this Englishman named, uh, named Hume. And Hume didn't publish much. Uh, but he was, he was 
very much in favor of the concrete, the simple streamline. And so Pound, along with this guy, Aldington, and a guy named Flint, and uh, probably to a bigger degree than his publicized uh, HD, put, became this group called the Imagists. And it's, uh, you know, Imagist sounds French for the sole reason that they thought it sounded cool to sound French, but they were, they were English language people. Um, and they went for a new style of poetry where they rejected Tennyson, specifically singled out Tennyson, even though they praised him as a, as a technician, for all the Victorian ideas of flower, flower leaves. They invited the, po the poet to speak of their mind, but they had three rules. And those were um, where the first one was treat the object directly. So in other words, whatever you're writing about, that is what you're writing about. Keep tangents as far from it as possible. The second rule was use as few words as possible. Sure, or specifically, they said waste no words. So they, they weren't saying use few words, but waste no words. Everything that, that you use has to contribute. And then they rejected meter. The third word was... Um, was to write to uh, to the rhythm of of music rather than to a uh, to the metronome, as they put it. So uh, back to your earlier question, it was something that was brewing that kind of came to a head in him, and uh, published in 1912. They, I guess they put out um, some poets from from these uh, images. And in a lot of ways, it, it changed everything. And again, American poets in England, that movement um, was later taken over by Amy Lowell, who was a superstar in London. She was an American. But she would go kind of uh, from hall to hall reading her poems, very much beloved. Um, well, I mentioned William Carlos Williams. It was a strange thing that <clears throat> either American poetry immigrated to England or... Um, the poetry that remained in America just got forgotten or overwhelmed by, by the reputations of the, uh, the expatriates. That's, uh, that's fascinating. I remember um, I watched a documentary, I think a year or two ago, on T.S. Eliot. I did not know that he was originally from the U.S. <laughs> um, Let me see. I forget where he was from specifically, but yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Missouri or something like that. Uh, so I guess the, the last question I would ask is um, the First World War, as they called it at the time until there was a second round, the Great War, uh, is remembered and thought of as a great break point for that 19th century high culture, everything involving uh, classical music and ballet and stuff like that. There, there was a massive loss of faith. Uh, in that world that expressed itself in various ways. Uh, did that spill over into the U.S., uh, or was it more complicated than that? I mean, it definitely affected the U.S., but uh, again, um, the well-known U.S. poets uh, were in London. So, I, you know, if you're getting uh, Amy Lowell's poetry before and after the war, you're not getting Amy Lowell's poetry as an American. You're getting, you know, Amy Lowell's poetry as somebody that uh, that lived through rationing and whatnot in the English sense. So, uh, you know, certainly it did. But I would say that American influence, the see the war's influence on American poets, probably more came from reading British poets or Americans in Great Britain. 
That makes a lot of sense. Uh, ben, you've definitely uh, given me a lot of given me and our listeners a lot of names and uh, a lot of uh, stuff to think about and to chew on, and uh, definitely need to contend with uh, one Ezra Pound. Uh, thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. I'd like to once again remind my listeners that you can listen to this podcast on Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and YouTube, and you can support the podcast on Patreon. See you all next time at Avi's Conversational Corner. Thank you.